When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You care about your money. Of course you do. So why aren't you listening to SoFi Daily? This podcast will keep you updated on the latest news in the stock market and how it could impact your financial life. Stay on top of what's happening. Listen to SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us on How She Does It. On this show, we talk about all things women, money, and power. I'm Karen Feinerman. Before we get into the interview, I want to make a quick announcement. Our podcast is now on YouTube. Make sure to subscribe to the At Her Money channel to get notified when new episodes come out. And make sure to comment and like if you enjoy the episode. And I guess you can comment even if you don't. Female startup founders are few and far between. A recent survey from Startup Genome found that only 15% of tech startup founders are female, and when asked, only 22% of people can name a single famous female in tech, despite companies like YouTube, Oracle, and Canva being run by women. We hear about female serial entrepreneurs even less. That's why today I'm so thrilled to be joined by one of those women who sold not one, but three startups. She previously founded a video shopping platform a financial data platform, and her most recent sale, Boardlist, is a board candidate discovery platform that helps board-ready executives find their first seats and helps companies find diverse board talent. Sukinder Singh Cassidy is currently the CEO of Zero, an online accounting software business that connects small business owners with their numbers, their bank, and advisors anytime. She has more than 25 years of experience building and scaling global companies, including Google, Amazon, and StubHub, and is the author of Choose Possibility, Take Risks and Thrive, Even When You Fail. Sukinder, welcome. Very glad to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. So we learned about your story courtesy of the broadsheet titled A Serial Entrepreneur Sells Her Third Startup. And we barely hear about women selling one startup, but three is really impressive. So before we get to the end, the sale of the companies, let's go back to the beginning. I want to start with your early career. And I know from your book, when you graduated college, despite landing interviews at Goldman and McKinsey, you found it really tough to land a job. And in that section, you talk about the myth of the single choice. Tell us what that means and how you use that philosophy at your first career impasse. So you hit maybe one of the core things that are sort of, I believe in my roots about successful careers, which is successful careers are made by pursuing multiple choices in sequence rather than betting on a single big choice to pan out the way you want. By the way, that same thing is true in startups, which we'll come to in a moment. And so when I started my career, 
one of the things I learned how to do very early on when I was having trouble finding that job is what I call pipelining in parallel. It turns out that if you bet on kind of and hope on one big job interview to get the job, you're in trouble. But once you start sort of setting up, I'd, I'd say, parallel pipelining of kind of the stretch job and the easiest job and pick your way through choices, you ultimately end up with the job of your dreams or the choice of your dreams. It just may not happen the way you want. And so for me, that early career lesson, which is like, gosh, my colleague or my best friend who's just graduated the same program as I, she interviewed two places, she got one job. Boo-hoo, what's wrong with me? And I'm like, well, if it takes interviewing to 50 or creating 100 opportunities to get your first job, it doesn't matter, right? It's about creating enough opportunity where you can kind of play the probabilities. And so when you think about that as applied to startups, you talked about my first career impasse, but also the opportunity to start companies, we often think that it's about one mighty choice. And I always say to people, your career is not made up of one mighty choice. It's about creating enough opportunity through enough choices, trying to make a smart choice, and then guess what? Then you're in a ritual of basically experimentation and return, experimentation and return, and you're iterating your way through, I don't know, a hundred, a thousand choices as you make your way through your startup or your bigger company job until you get the outcome that you dreamed of. And maybe you won't. But if you've created impact on the way, it's going to be a great story. And so I kind of feel like my career has been a lesson in choice making and not betting on one single mighty choice, but betting on making the first choice and then getting into motion. Because it turns out, you know, there's many, many choices between you and success. It's interesting. We we talk a lot on different podcasts about the circuitous path people take. And I got to say, you have one of the more circuitous ones <laughs> out there. And so it sort of fits with the idea of just creating different opportunities, creating different pipelines and sort of pursuing them. And there's a part of it that's really a risk management kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like it's really risky, but I think you're saying the opposite. That I am saying the opposite. I'm saying that the premise of the book, and one of the reasons I wrote a book in between running StubHub mm -hmm. and coming to zero <laughs> was because I believe so strongly in this thesis that the thing that prevents us from starting our first company or from making a job switch is this sense that there's a single choice between us and failure. And I feel like saying, but that's not quite true, right? You make a choice. It may seem big to you. It may be small. But isn't your job to get into motion? And then, as I said, every choice that comes from there is a choice. It's like an iterative choice of executing, seeing what happens. You're obviously trying to create impact as you go with every choice you make when you are in a role, when you are in that startup, right? When you've taken the big leap. Now the question is, okay, how many choices are you going to iterate your way through? How many lessons are you going to learn? How many things are you going to have to experiment with until you get success? And then, as I said, one day, a cumulative set of choices add up to the thing you imagined or they add up to something else. But either way, if you stay fo focused on choice-making, learning, impact, choice-making, learning, impact, you're going to end up creating either the success you dreamed up or a different kind of success. But what I do know is this heaviness of making a single mighty choice. My goodness, that's not what stands between you and any outcome. It's a hundred or a thousand choices. So don't obsess about the first one. Just get in motion. <laughs> make the smallest choice you can that gets you to action. Nobody, nobody's saying you have to make the big choice. And that's probably the ironic truth about all of my startups. I iteratively chose my way into them in two out of three cases. In one, I leapt in the other without knowing much. In the other two, I iterated my way into becoming a founder again. So tell us about your first startup, how you got there, what your plans were, what actually happened, and then how you sold it. 
Sure. And to be fair, it sold long after I left. So giving me credit for the sale, it's like that's a discredit to the team that continued to build Yodely. But even Yodely, I think, is a lesson in risk management of a different kind, right? And how I got there was also circuitous, which is sort of what you expect. So look, I came to Silicon Valley in 1997. And I came here for two reasons. Number one, I wanted to be an entrepreneur, but I did not know how. (laughs) And I also wanted to be in the Bay Area because I sensed that tech was an opportunity space for me. I had no idea, I would say, of the magnitude to which tech in 1997 was an emerging opportunity. I knew it was an opportunity. My first choice was a roughly proximate choice. I moved to the Bay Area and I got a job. And I was like, if I get myself here, something good will happen. And in fact, I ended up at a startup that sold to Amazon. And so my choice there was a rough choice. It wasn't like, I am going to be an entrepreneur and I know the idea. It was like, I'm going to go put myself around entrepreneurship and trust that something good will happen. So I got to my first startup. Luckily for me, that the startup was Jungly. It was a group of, I would say, very talented Indian entrepreneurs. They sold the company to Amazon. And they themselves became angel investors in their own right from the wealth they created. And so I'm at Amazon, I'm executing post-acquisition, and one of those founders who's now, you know, made his first set of extraordinary wealth knows I want to be an entrepreneur, knows I don't know how, and and thinks well of the work I've done at the startup and I'm doing at Amazon, and basically calls me up and says, hey, I've invested in this startup that aggregates your financial data. There's five technical co-founders, and they need a business co-founder, and I recommended you. And so I was like, wow, I'm 28 years old, whatever I am, and I want to be a founder and I don't know how. And so I fly down for the weekend. And again, remember, this is now me having made a choice to go work with the startup. The startup gets sold. The founder becomes an angel investor. All five of them do, actually. And several of them are invested in this company. So I get an opportunity to meet these amazing technical founders who've created this kind of data that this platform that aggregates all your financial data. I meet them over a weekend. And two weeks later, I've committed to join the company as their business co-founder, and I leave Amazon. That's how I got my first start. But it's not like I had the brilliant idea, right? I put myself proximate to opportunity. And it was a leap of faith because I left Amazon, and there'll be many people who are like, man, imagine if you stayed at Amazon. True. Imagine if I'd stayed at Amazon. It would have been a brilliant choice too, right? But I went on and had the experience of a lifetime being a founder at Yodely. Yodely went public in 2015. I was there for the first five years, built the business model, helped hire the CEO, did all our first enterprise sales, met the VC community. And in many ways, Yodely led to my next opportunity because I I met uh, the founders and the senior executives at Google when I was running Yodely. And so when I lifted my head up at year five and said, gosh, I've done every job at this startup that I own. We have a great CEO. It's growing, but it's not growing fast enough to help me learn anything more. And so I said to the CEO, I said, look, I'm going to move on to my next opportunity. It's amazing that you're running the company. I love Yodely, right? But I could see it was going to be a long road, and I felt like my learning was maxing out. But my next opportunity, that same group of angels, that same kind of karitsu that had helped expose me to the Yodely opportunity, well, turns out that I met the founders of Google through the Yodely opportunity. I met, we had the same backers. We had the same angel investors. And so when I was looking for a job, you know, one of my key mentors, who was an investor in both companies, said, Sukinder, you should really go talk to Google. And I remember saying at the time, I'm like, Ram, you know, I like Google, but it's just too big. I think I want to go start another company. How big was it then? At that time, Google was less than 1,000 people. And he's just go talk to them. So I went over and I had coffee at Google. And I was like, look, I love what you guys are building, but I don't think there's an entrepreneurial opportunity in here for me. 
kept looking at opportunities. Remember, we talked about pipelining, sort of I knew I was going to leave, but I wanted to look at a lot of opportunities. And eight months later, Google called me back. I was still at Yodley thinking about what my next move might be. They knew I was going to make a move. And they call me up and they're like, hey, we have an entrepreneurial opportunity within Google. I'm like, okay, tell me more. And they're like, well, AOL has this thing called MapQuest and Yahoo has a product called Yahoo Maps. And like all these companies are calling us and saying, what are you guys going to do in Maps and Local? And I'm like, oh, they're like, you know, the yellow page industry is 25 billion and we have nothing. And I was like, oh. And so I said, I'll come in and talk to you about that. I came in to Google and chat with them about the opportunity in local and maps. I studied the industry. In fact, found that $25 billion of advertising every day went to local advertising through those big books called the Yellow Pages. And two weeks later, I went, did a bunch of interviews. And I was like, this is a really big opportunity to build maps and local inside of Google is big. And so I ditched all the direct reports and mighty title I had at Yodely, which was my own startup. I went to be an individual contributor at Google as a director. And along with 10 engineers and one product manager, we built Google Local and Maps. So I took a risk. (laughs) But would that be a big risk? I don't know. It's Google. It's a thousand people. They have plenty of money to go spend on maps and local. But I gave up my career, like a really mighty title at my own startup, to go start a business within Google. You know, and then I ended up staying at Google for six years and ran uh, several businesses for them. So that's a little bit about the way the world works. When you say circuitous, this is sort of what I mean. You make a choice. You try and do good work, right? Just keep aiming at impact. And then you want to just keep open to opportunity. And opportunities, I think, come in all sorts of different shapes and sizes, and sometimes not what you expect. I mean, it's funny when you look back on things and say, oh, that makes sense. And it worked out. And at the time, though, looking forward, before you know what's going to happen, sort of a very different calculus. Did you get hung up at all about what will this look like if I leave this now and go to Google? I didn't because the thing is, I would say one good indicator for people in their careers, whether you're doing a startup or going somewhere bigger, is you want to look at where you are and say, do I still have the opportunity to have learning and impact? And for me, when that is topping out, then I always am looking for my next opportunity. Now, that might be inside the same company, right? As I said, I came to Google to run local and maps. I ended up running our international business. Like, I mean, I didn't know that when I got to Google, right? So I think you want to generally know the direction you're headed in. Keep looking for opportunities to have impact and learning. And if you can find them where you are, take the lateral move. Take the small risk. Because quite frankly, I always say to people, these are mostly two-way doors. It doesn't work out. You can go back and go get that safe job, right? But take the opportunity for learning and impact. And when you're topping out, ask yourself, like, where's my next frontier? And so I think I have used that as my guidepost. So I didn't really worry about what I was leaving at Yodley because I'd been there for five years. I knew what the movie looked like. You know, I'd done multiple jobs. I'd run biz dev. I'd run sales. I'd run marketing at one point. I'd run product at one point. I mean, I had done every job at my own startup. I knew exactly what the business plan was for the next five years. And so I didn't really worry about what I was leaving behind. Now, When I left Amazon, did I know what Amazon would become? No. But am I regretful? Not at all, because I went on and had an amazing career in my own direction. So I do think if you worry about what you're leaving behind, you might not see the opportunity for your next learning. I think that's the key lesson, right? If you always are anchored in the thing you're leaving that's safe, you will never take the growth opportunity. And you know, the growth opportunity is where all the learning is, and ultimately that's where your outsized growth is. Mm -hmm. So one of the things you highlight in your book and you talk about is failure. So let's talk about some failures. And I always welcome the opportunity to talk about failures, mine or someone else's, because there's so much to learn there. And I think that to sort of revisit them, you have to have both humility and confidence. 
to really get the most out of them. So you talk in your book about Joyous. Tell us about that, how you built it, and then how it ended up. Sure. So first of all, people call all of my startups a success. I sold Joyous. So, you know, I get a lot of credit for being the person who sold their company. I sold Joyous for very little money. Joyous was an e-commerce platform that sold entirely through video. Today, that would seem amazing, right? But I left kind of a big career at Google to go be an entrepreneur again, first with Polyvore and then with Joyous. And Joyous was my own second company. But in 2010, the idea of building a platform where people would watch videos and buy products because of the story told in the video was not obvious. You know, that was like 13 years ago. It's so funny that you look at that now and it's so relevant. It's so relevant, right? You think the timing's relevant, but remember, I sold that business for very little money. And three years later, that same business would have been a unicorn. So I have a lot of scar tissue, right? I started in 2010. I looked at QVC and HSN online. I'm like, why is nobody replicating this model on the internet? Um, YouTube had haul videos at the time, girls who would go shopping and show you their haul, but no e-commerce functionality, none, not no shopping button, no shopping cart, nothing. And so I built a platform that basically had its own studios and had its own video player that had a shopping cart in the video player. And we ran studios and we had the patents on the tech. And I ran that business for seven years. We grew to about 20 million annually in revenue, it was venture funded. And in 2016, no venture capitalists wanted to give us more money. Think about that. In 2020, if you were running $20 million in e-commerce sales through video, you would be called a unicorn. You would have money thrown at you. In 2016, people were sort of like, mm, sorry, Sukinda, you've already spent a lot of money. At the time, I think we'd raised close to $50 million. Again, in today's world, that would have been peanuts, honestly, in the world of tech, venture financing. But nobody wanted to give me more money. So we put the company up for sale. And ultimately, I'm proud that Joyce continues today with its new owner, but we sold it for very little money. So is that a success or a fail? For me, it's a fail, right? Because I'm like, man, I, I invested seven years to build this business. And in the end, I couldn't keep going without having a sale. So I think there's so many lessons in that. The lessons I took is yeah, sometimes you can be right on the idea and wrong on timing. I think timing is everything in a startup. You can have the best idea, but if a co consumer is not ready to adopt it, your unit economics can be really difficult. And our unit economics were difficult. We had to pay to distribute the video. We had to pay for studios. We had to pay for inventory because you didn't have today's online marketplaces. So we had a very costly model, if that makes sense. And five years later, you have Instagram video, you have TikTok video, you have YouTube finally adopted e-commerce. If I had started that business five years later, the consumer would be more ready because all the major video platforms would have been rails I could ride on, right? They all had the infrastructure to do e-commerce. When I started, nobody did. So sometimes the lesson is timing. Sometimes the lesson is the best efforts against poor timing will not work. Sometimes the lesson is you can iterate at many things and despite your best efforts, it doesn't work out. Like you ask about humility. I was interviewing an executive recently to join Zero because Zero is a very large company. You know, it's publicly traded. I'm running it now. And I said, well, you know, I said, tell me a little bit about your super presence. And the gentleman said, I love to win. I'm sure you love to win, Sukinder. Like, we probably share that in common. You're intense. I'm intense. I'm like, I do love to win, but I failed quite a few times. <laughs> so just to be clear, I don't have a perfect record. I'm like, do you? And then this, the executive revealed to me that in between his two large executive stints, he was the co-founder of a small company, and he went from being the CMO of something large to like the guy having to run the ad campaigns. But he only revealed that to me when I said, 
yeah, I love to win, but if you think I always win, I don't know. Like, the world doesn't work that way. (laughs) Uh, I said, I've been smacked around enough to know that you can make the best efforts, and it still doesn't always work out, right? That's life. And then he admitted his failure to me. And I said to him at the end of the interview, I said, you know, there's some people for whom having a perfect resume is a draw. Just so you know, for me, if I was you, I would put that experience on LinkedIn because for someone like me, seeing that you know how to handle failure, what you learned from failure, that you understand that failure is a necessary condition of success mm-hmm. and makes you a better leader, that's actually the most interesting thing about your story. I It's agree. not that it looks perfect on LinkedIn. I'm sort of suspicious of a resume that looks perfect, Right that you haven't stretched yourself. You haven't put yourself at risk. This is maybe the macro point about failure. To your point, yes, have I learned humility? Sure. I think humility and confidence are actually very well paired. People think of them as opposites. I'm like, they're not. Because people sometimes give me a lot of credit for being confident. I'm like, you know why I'm confident? Because I know I have a resilience to failure. I know that I am not unstoppable. I know that I am fallible. So if you know you're fallible, my confidence comes from a different place. It's it's okay that I don't know everything. You know what? The good news is I get to build diverse teams wherever I go, and they get to fill in the blanks where I have blind spots. I can pick myself up off the floor. So can you. And quite frankly, you also get a lot of perspective. Joyce didn't break me. It doesn't break you to have failure. It makes you sort of more, as you said, able and attuned to embrace growth and to be like, I'm going to be okay. I'm going to be, you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay if something doesn't work out the way you imagined. It will work out a different way. Yeah. <laughs> Right. I mean, to not sort of look back and study and think about, all right, what can I learn from that? That's the mistake. Yeah, that's, that's the, the mistake. mistake. And don't get me wrong. That doesn't mean I don't have regret. Like people ask me about career regrets and I'm like, oh, maybe I should have gone two more years and found somebody to fund me. Of course, of course. But you do have regret. But I think that if you live in the past, it's very hard. It's very hard to take the next risk that might be the way things open. And what I am open to is serendipity. I think you're prepared. I think you generally want to know the direction you're headed in. And then just be prepared for latitude in how that might show up. Does that make sense? So I believe you always have to have a direction and you're always pipelining for opportunity, but have some latitude in how that might show up. And you're going to be much more able, I think, to find a growth path if you give yourself some latitude. Yeah, there's a saying, chance favored those who are prepared, right? Yes, that's right. Something will come your way. Yeah, luck favors the prepared. That's true. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. From the latest in artificial intelligence to new apps and business upgrades, the tech industry is always changing and growing. So keep up with a Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes released nearly every day, The Daily Crunch gives you a brief overview of the biggest tech headlines, 
and it's all delivered in around five minutes or less. So you can easily hear about the latest updates while trying some of those updates for yourself. Listen to The Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back with Sukinder Singh Cassidy. So when you, you do sort of build something and it's kind of your baby and then you sell it, what do you do with the money? Do you even... Is, I mean, <laughs> Well, first of all, you don't always make a lot of money. Like in my book, I talk about the fact that I made more money at Google than I made at Yodely. Mm -hmm. Yodely was mine. Everyone's like, well, you were a founder. And I'm like, yeah. So people think that big risk equals big reward. I'm like, many risks equals big reward. It might be a small risk that is the nth risk you take that unlocks the big reward. It might be a big risk that leads to small reward. The relationship between risk and reward generally is one that plays out over many choices, not a single choice. This is what I comes back to that myth of the single choice. So if you think like the size of I, the risk I took must equate to the reward, not always so clear. If you say the number of risks I took relates to a big reward, I agree with that statement. So first of all, don't presume that all my money comes from startups. I'd say any wealth creation I've had, I think is first and foremost, I hope is related to creating impact. Did you create impact where you go? Impact comes before success. So try and create impact where, wherever you go, your small business, your large business. And if you keep creating impact, yes, will you unlock financial reward? I'm sure you will if you become a smarter risk taker. But I think it's about creating impact. So I think the relationship is between impact and cumulative reward, not between single startup sold and singular reward. And you'll find that, I think, everywhere you go, that that's the case. So when you sell it, like, sure, if you make money, put it in the bank, sure. But I think the bigger thing that you talked about is sometimes you're also playing for the future. I just sold the board list. I think that's the article you discovered this in. The board list is my side hustle. I run zero every day <laughs> before zero. I ran StubHub, you know, which some of you may be familiar with. So the board list was my third startup. I decided to start as a side hustle. It was a mission-driven project to try and create a platform where women could get discovered for boards and could be endorsed, could be aggregated together so you could see all the great board candidates and companies would come find a board member. And that evolved into a talent marketplace that we've been growing for seven years and we just sold it. But really, we just merged it with another board platform. And why did we merge it? So we can get bigger and have more impact. So quite frankly, I'm playing for the future. There's no big payday in selling the board list. I just sold it for equity in something that's a board platform that's larger than us. And now I'm the biggest shareholder in the combined because I'm playing for impact. I'm playing for bigger impact. Can we now get to bigger scale? And sure, maybe that one day, Karen, that impact is going to equate financial reward. Maybe it won't. You know, here's how I've been schooled. You don't know. It's a startup. <laughs> so all I know is that seven years, we may just be getting started. So I think startups have definitely, you only took 15 years to get public. You know, the company I'm running now, Zero, where I think we're just getting started, it's 17 years old. Google, we would argue that Google at 25 years old is like interesting. Look at Amazon at 25 years old. I mean, they are whole new horizons. So all I've really learned is don't presume that your startup is a short-term thing. Play for impact. And sometimes impact means future impact. And you just keep trying to make the smart choices to get to a scale that's meaningful. Maybe when you get to a scale that's meaningful, maybe there's an outcome that's financial, maybe not. But our job right now is just to keep creating impact and increasing scale. That's what we're doing at the board list. Mm. So let me ask you in your CEO role. Yes. What guides you as a CEO, which is different than the part of the business that's building something, I think? It is and it, it isn't. So what's different is as a CEO of something large, you're making strategy choices all day long, right? You already have scale. 
So now the question is how to apply your resources to unlock more impact. So you have a, to your point, you have a fundamentally different problem than the one I have at the board list, which is I'm the founder of something that's small. So every day I'm trying to be create enough impact to be relevant to a broader and broader audience. When you go run something, a large brand like a Zero or a StubHub, your job as CEO is like, oh gosh, lots of people are already depending on us. So how do I make marginal choices with my resources so we can unlock more impact? for our, a large set of customers who depend on us already. That's different, right? You don't have to create momentum. Momentum exists, and your job is to apply your resources thoughtfully. That's different. Now what's the same? Lessons on risk-taking. What's the biggest challenge in a large company? Inertia. <laughs> what's the biggest challenge in a large team? Man, if we try something new, do we jeopardize what we already have? If you think about the opportunity cost of taking a risk, in a large company, people think the opportunity cost is high. So really, it's to help train risk-taking and agility in a large company. So half the time I wake up and say, oh, we have businesses that are already big. Where do I make sure we apply our resources thoughtfully? Half my time is spent encouraging our organizations to take more risk and have the agility of a small startup. I've, I've to wake up every day and be like, guys, our marginal choice every day is to take a little more risk to create new impact. Can we do that? Or do you just want to rest on the impact we're having today? Because you could do that and it feels really comfortable in the moment, but your risk is you're risking tomorrow's customer if you don't every day wake up with agility towards your customer. So it's a really different problem set when you think about applying resources to something that has momentum. It's the same problem set when you say the job is still to take new risk and to work with agility for your customers. In a startup, you can't help it. Your very existence is threatened if you don't do it. In a large company, you could not do it for a while, right? So do you find a difference in the willingness to take risks between men and women? Or is it their willingness to take different kinds of risk? It's such a good question. I wanted the answer to be no. <laughs> but factually speaking, I wrote a book, as you know, on risk taking in your career. And that's a part of what we've been talking about today. So when I was doing my corporate speaking tour post the book, the book itself is not aimed at any gender. It, it aims equally at everybody's possibility and opportunity to take risk. But in corporate speaking, people ad would ask me this question. So I was able to look at a lot of the research, including this one study that looked at 35 different risk-taking behavior studies. And the learnings is women take less risk than men. Now, inside of that are a few other learnings that are pretty important. First of all, like gender stereotypes, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you presume women take less risk and tell them that they take less risk, then, <laughs> then quite frankly, they will act in ways that are consistent with that expectation, right, or that environment. Does that make sense? So by putting word to it and telling people they take it, you might in fact create or validate or revalidate that kind of negative virtuous cycle. So it is true that if you presume they're less capable, then you might reinforce their perception. So you don't want to run around and tell everybody in the world, like, hey, women take less risk. You're not capable. So you don't want to reinforce a negative stereotype because it could, in fact, you know, validate that behavior. So that was one learning within the study. The second learning is that women will wait till they are overqualified, whereas men will more indiscriminately take risk. So there was a study among men and boys versus women and girls. And interestingly, men would make take indiscriminate risk, including risks that aren't good for them, <laughs> whereas women were so choiceful in their risk-taking, including not taking risks for them, that are relatively, I would say, 
positive. So you have more indiscriminate risk-taking for men and maybe being overly choosy and overly conservative in risk-taking, including small risks with women. So the findings, the research would indicate there is a difference, but that doesn't mean that we want to validate that research by telling women they're incapable of taking risk. That's not the way to solve the problem. You know, it's about, I'd say, being thoughtful and understanding that for all of your populations, including women, being encouraging of risk-taking, including small and frequent risk-taking, might be kind of the path through this. But to presume everybody's capable of taking risk and then create opportunities for all of your leaders and people to take little risks more often, I often feel that's the better way to go than to tell people to take one gigantic risk. Again, that's reinforcing that myth of the single choice. So isn't my job to help people take little risks and build the muscle, both men and women? I think that's my opportunity as a CEO, and it's my opportunity for myself, quite frankly. That's the thing I tell myself every day when I'm faced with a big risk. I'm like, what's the smallest risk I could take today that gets me the information I need? And then maybe one day I'm going to have to make a truly big call, right? But I want to be very equipped by having taken a number of little risks to learn before the day I'm equi- I need to make the big kind of one-way door kind of risk, right? It's interesting. I think women often are, in my business, I've seen women more afraid to take risk. And yet, to me, not taking risk is, in fact, quite risky. Oh, absolutely. It's the riskiest choice of all because... I think inherent in not taking risk is this presumption that the environment around you is stagnant. Right. Okay. And that is, so when people say not moving is not risky, I'm like, not moving is the riskiest thing of all. Because while you are staying still in your choice, right, choice making is going on around you. So you are then not responsive to the environment you're in. Davos, the World Economic Forum, looked at the atrophy of your skill set over a five-year period. And any current skill you have atrophies its value by something like 30 to 50% over five years. So not saying still, not choosing to grow your skills. Mm -hmm. Even that choice is a risk because data would suggest that that skill set is going to be outdated in three to five years. So the rest of the world is moving, my friend. So it's risky to not make any moves, right? So making small moves is better than no moves. That is the big lesson because then you can be responsive to an environment that's, that's changing around you. So there was a lot to like in that book, and the myth of the single choices is such a good one. Just interestingly, looking at your career, it looks like that's what you've done the whole way through. And who knows how much left you have to do. Hopefully a lot. But let's put it this way. All the choices I'm focused on right now are for zero and for the board list. And mostly I feel like there's so much choice making you do every day as a CEO, right? And again, all you're really trying to do is unlock impact so you can kind of meet your long own long-term aspirations for your team, your business, your customers. So hopefully a lot of my choice making is focused in two directions right now. Uh, zero and uh, is my big one. And, and the board list continues to be my baby. So l- let's just talk about your work at Zero. And the Zero Beautiful Business Fund. So what kind of submissions did you receive for this? And (laughs) what really impressed you? Well, first of all, I think we spent the majority of this podcast talking about my career as a small business owner, you know, and a founder. And then every day, obviously, I wake up and I run a company that does what? It serves small businesses. You know, we give them an accounting platform, a platform to manage their Uh, financial data, their payments, their payroll, uh, and it's really fun. So the Beautiful Business Fund was our own small risk to help our customers unlock opportunity. We launched a fund where customers around the world could make submissions in four different categories where they would be eligible to win the equivalent of $10,000 toward a risk that they want to take to advance their business. 
And I think we've had over 5,500 submissions worldwide, video submissions, of what people would do with the money from the fund. And we're going to award something like 750000 New Zealand dollars, which is almost half a million U.S. dollars, to a set of winners. And some of the really fun ones we've seen, again, this is about enabling small businesses to take risk, right, by giving them a little bit of a financial scholarship to do so. A Canadian hair and beauty salon that basically said, hey, in the sustainability category, we really want to reduce plastics by using hair extensions made from plants. Your money would allow us to do this. We had an art studio, a DIY art studio that wants to serve low-income kids in their communities and offer them programs. You know, they were applying to money to that category. In Australia, we had basically a firm that said to us, we want to really take advantage of the technology category, advancing technology, and we really want to try using augmented reality inside of um, how our products look so customers can see them in augmented reality before they purchase. That's an example of a technology submission we got. And then I think one of my other favorite ones is we had New Zealand applier that really wanted to also help strengthen their community by really creating regenerative gardens inside of all of the schools and the spaces they provide. I mean, amazing submissions. Because I wake up every day thinking about my own startup, I just love uh, us opening up dollars to our small business customers around the world to really empower their dreams. Well, that seems like a fun endeavor. So let me ask you, what do you think is next for you, either at zero or on the horizon? Well, look, as we talked about, like, you know, if you live in the world of portfolio of choices, I think of any choices I make career-wise as like long-term choices, right? So choosing to come to zero for me is about this is where I want to spend the next five, seven, I hope more years unlocking impact because it's a platform I'm passionate about uh, and one that serves both sides of me, right? As I said, I'm a tech founder myself. I'm a small business owner with the board list. And every day I love thinking about how to help customers at scale. My second choice is just to make sure that the board list continues under its new owner to keep unlocking impact and helping governance globally get better. That's my side hustle. And it, you know, I think it's great to just think about how boardrooms need to change and evolve to really be better at at their own responsibility to governance in the world. So the majority of our customers are in the U.S., but I think our ambitions are global, right? It's like governance globally will continue to be a hot topic because boardrooms need to change and meet the growing and evolving needs of their businesses, their shareholders, their customers, right? So if you think about it as governance is a good thing for the world, then we believe that board list and board prospects, really the combined vision of our startup, there's a lot left to do. And then lastly, my third choice is, hey, I'm a mom, right? I'm a mom. I'm a wife. I just want to keep on making good choices for my family and with my family. So as far as I can tell, my plate's pretty full. I'm pretty happy. All things being equal, I just want to keep creating more impact with all my different hats on. It's a lot of hats. So we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with the lightning round. From the terrifying power of tornadoes to sizzling summer temperatures, AccuWeather Daily brings you the top trending weather-related story of the day, every day of the week. You can learn a lot in just a few minutes. Stories that will impact you, such as how a particular hurricane may affect your area, or will that impending snow event bring more than just a winter wonderland? Occasionally, there are weather-related stories from the lighter side, like how a recent storm trapped tourists inside Agatha Christie's house, a setup perfect for a plot of one of her novels. And if there's a spectacular meteor shower or eclipse coming your way, we'll let you know if the sky in your area will be clear to check out the celestial display. You see, AccuWeather Daily is more than just weather. It's AccuWeather. Listen and subscribe to AccuWeather Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's AccuWeather Daily 
wherever you get your podcasts. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. You'll hear advice on everything from how to build confidence to how to get the best night's sleep. New episodes drop every weekday and each one is five minutes or less. So you only have to listen a little to get a lot more out of your weekdays. Listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, here we go. You may know this best as would you rather. And the only challenge is that you can't think about these. You just have to say whatever comes to your mind at the moment. Okay, so would you rather be the CEO of a Fortune 500 company or found a startup? Come on, for somebody like me, that's a hard one. Fortune 500. Okay. Sit courtside at a basketball game, because I do know you're a women's basketball fan or a general basketball fan, or VIP seats at a concert. Courtside at a basketball game. Would you rather go viral once or have a small but very loyal fan base? Small but very loyal fan base. Would you rather drive or be driven? Drive. Would you rather spontaneously sing in a crowded restaurant or give a speech to 10,000 people? Speech to 10,000 people. (laughs) Tennis or pickleball? Tennis. Okay. I'm a tennis player as well. Sneakers or heels? Heels. Fiction or nonfiction? Fiction. What are you reading now? Right now, actually, this is nonfiction, but I did just start it because one is super pumped. I just started it last night on Audible. But generally fiction, super pumped because our new CMO at Zero just joined us from Uber. And he said, hey, if you guys want to ever hear the story of what unfolded in the background, I was like, oh, yeah. I'm like, I'm going to read Super Pumped. So it's uh, currently the topic at our at our leadership team. I think those of us who haven't read Super Pumped are reading it. Okay. So the last one, what is the best investment you've ever made and the worst investment you've ever made? And we have a broad definition of investment. It doesn't necessarily mean investment. It could be a class. It could be taking a chance of meeting someone. Could be anything. My best investment, my investment in my husband and my marriage. Mm -hmm. Sheryl Sandberg talks about this, and I think it's important. Not only did I find somebody who's my complement, but I'm very aware that my ability to make the choices I have has been because I have just a great partner. So investing that investment in marriage and in him has multiple returns, not just for my family, but also honestly has made my career possible. So that's probably my best investment. And then my worst investment, I made my first decent amount of wealth from stock in Amazon, right? I was young. I was at Amazon. I got a lot of stock through an acquisition. And all of a sudden, I found myself with some wealth, right? And I was like 29 or 30 years old. And I had a broker. He's like, yeah, let's sell Amazon and let's put all of that money in Digital Island. And Digital Island was a company I didn't know. We were in like 99 to 2000 to 2001, where like the markets are going berserk. I let somebody take my money and tell me you invest in something I didn't know. And I believe you make money when you know things deeply. So I'm happy to take risk with my money, but I've always made money by investing in things I know, right? When I'm an angel investor, I invest in things I know because I can see the pattern. Guess what happened to Digital Island? It went to zero. What happened to Amazon stock over the last 20 years? Painful investment decision. 25,000 percent return, maybe. I'm not exactly sure. (laughs) So when I say invest in what you know, when it comes to managing your money, I like to angel invest. I have a portfolio of risk I take. But generally speaking, I invest in sectors and categories I know. 
<laughs> that was an easy one. <laughs> that is an easy one. Okay. Thankfully, we don't have time for all the stupid investments that I've made. That would be an all-day endeavor. Anyway, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for spending the time and telling us your story, which is a fascinating one. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining me today on How She Does It. Thank you so much to Sikinder Singh Cassidy for showing us why we should all take more risks in our careers and more chances on ourselves. When you have a moment, please follow us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to updates from the Her Money community at hermoney.com slash subscribe. Our producers are Catherine Tuggle and Haley Pascalides with help from everyone at Her Money. This podcast is mixed and mastered out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is from Video Helper and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Have a great week and I look forward to seeing you here with us again. Onward. <laughs>